0: Good evening everyone. Librarian Danielle Bilanger here from the Code St. Luke Public Library joining you virtually. Tonight we have another great program for you. The library is thrilled to have the opportunity to host a conversation with historical fiction author Lizzie Pook. Thank you very much Lizzie for taking the time to speak with me today and to Gillian at Simon & Schuster for making this event possible. Thanks also to Andreas at Paragraph Bookstore for collaborating with us on this event. To begin with, I'll share a condensed bio. Lizzie Pook is a London-based travel writer and journalist whose work has taken her her to some of the farthest flung parts of the planet, from the trans-Himalayas in search of elusive snow leopards to the vast uninhabited east coast of Greenland. She's written for The Guardian, The Telegraph, The Times in London, The Evening Standard, Stylist, and more. Moonlight and the Perler's Daughter is her first novel. Welcome, Lizzie, and thank you for joining me today. Before we delve into your just-released debut historical fiction novel, Moonlight and the Perler's Daughter, let's talk a bit about some of the mentions in your bio. First up, please do share with us your experience searching for the elusive snow leopards.
1: <laughs> well, firstly, thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. Um, yes, as a travel writer, I've been lucky to go to some pretty incredible places, um, often in search of sort of very rare wildlife, because that's something that really fascinates me. And um, that was a an incredible trip and we were staying in a, a homestay with a local family and we could see the himalayas in the distance and every day um some local villagers would, would help us basically scour the mountains for the elusive snow leopard and so every day we would go out we would just be staring at the mountains we would go out and try and you know see if we could find snow leopard tracks or or kills you know um pray that the that the snow leopards had left behind. Um, and we had no luck, you know, absolutely no luck for, you know, it must've been four days or something like that. And we set camera traps to see if we could see anything. And um, ultimately on the very last day, the last morning of our trip, um, I decided to go up and stand with some of the local villagers who were scouting for the snow leopards and suddenly one of them just started shouting really really excitedly looking through his scope and on the crest of this mountain was a mother snow leopard and her two cubs and they were jumping from sort of uh, boulder to boulder I suppose and playing and it was just the most otherworldly incredible experience and such a privilege.
0: Wow, that's great. I'm really happy you got to see them. Your patience and perseverance uh, paid off.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was definitely that.
0: (laughs) Could you also fill us in on your experience on the east coast of Greenland?
1: Yes, so that was an expedition ship, a small expedition ship that was going up the east coast of Greenland and the west coast of Greenland is inhabited there's you know there's a small city there there's villages and things like that but the east coast doesn't really have any of that it's very remote um there's you know, no one there and so this was a 10-day trip and we were so remote that we didn't have um, satellite or radio signal we were cut off from the rest of the world <laughs> basically um, just traveling through these these beautiful icy you know eerie um, landscapes with huge glaciers, and just, I, I, it's very difficult to describe the sort of crispness of a landscape like that, um, but we saw polar bears, um, we saw whales, we saw musk oxen, which are these strange <laughs> creatures that kind of look like um, Ewoks from Star Wars, but <laughs> the size of a cow, um, and it was it was just such a otherworldly freeing experience because you know if something happened to us there there wasn't pretty much nothing that we could do because we just were were not in contact with anyone else so it it was just those of us that were on this this small ship for 10 days going through this um beautiful landscape Mm. that was that was another you know i'll never forget that sounds a little scary I think it's one of those things that if you allowed your mind to wander then yes. perhaps it would get scary but we had plenty <laughs> to do you know going out and in these little zodiac boats and sort of looking at things and seeing beautiful glaciers and icebergs and taking photographs and things like that so yeah we have lots
0: to keep the mind ticking over <laughs> <laughs> You've worked as a journalist for a variety of publications. Others I didn't mention, you also contributed to Our Lonely Planet, Rough Guides, and Condé Nast Traveler. Can you tell us about uh, writing these writing experiences and if they led you to write a novel or not?
1: <laughs> I think definitely being a travel writer has helped with the experience of of writing a novel, but perhaps because my novel is very much um, about the setting yes. and it's, it's, it's hopefully a very immersive um, novel. And when you're a travel writer, your job is to try and get the sense of a place over to your reader as quickly and as concisely, but as immersively as, po- as possible. And so I think hopefully in some ways that has helped with, with writing the novel. Um, but yes, I, I've, I've been a travel writer for you know nearly a decade, um, and it was only in the sort of last few years that I've started writing novels. Um, and it's been an interesting—I mean, it's a very different discipline. Uh, when you're a journalist, everything you're writing is basically the truth and things that have happened, and you're recounting things that have actually happened. And so to then turn your attentions to a novel and be presented with a blank page and you know essentially someone saying make it up it's a very different way of writing and using the brain Mm -hmm. so when I first started I actually found it quite jarring to go from journalistic writing to creativity and just you know being able to write whatever I wanted to write (laughs) um but yeah it's it's I do think that they feed into uh one another in interesting ways and um writing for those sorts of publications is always um a real privilege. And, you know, when I started out as a journalist, you know, working my way through women's magazines as sort of junior, junior level writer, I never thought I would get to the point where I, you know, could travel to India and write about snow leopards for, you know, national newspapers or things like that. So it, it does, it feels, it feels quite amazing. I feel lucky. <laughs> yes.
0: A big thank you to Gillian at Simon & Schuster for sending me an advanced reader's copy of the book, which I will show over here.
1: Yay. (laughs) I've got the UK version here, not the Canadian version, but that's the UK cover, which is just, well, very
0: different. (laughs) Very nice. I'll share a synopsis of the plot for those listening in today. Everything has a price, and the truth may cost more than pearls. As the pearling ships return to Bannon Bay after a long diving season, 20 year old eliza brightwell awaits the arrival of her father's boat but when his lugger finally limps in it brings a tale of tragedy charles brightwell master purler, has gone missing at sea whispers from the townsfolk point to mutiny or murder headstrong eliza knows it is up to her to find out who or what is responsible for her father's disappearance Searching for the truth, she delves beneath the glamorous veneer of the South Sea pearling trade, only to discover that the sun scorched streets of Bannon Bay, a town she once thought she knew so well, are teeming with corruption, prejudice, and blackmail. How far is Eliza willing to go to save the ones she loves? And what family secrets will come to haunt her along the way? Congratulations, Lizzie, on a stunning family story that will draw at your heartstrings. Thank you. (laughs) I read you were inspired to write Moonlight and the Perler's Daughter after spending time in northwestern Australia. Can you please tell us a bit more about this?
1: That's interesting. That sentence makes it makes it sound like it was very straightforward and very quick. (laughs) But it wasn't. It was a long process of different ideas coming together over you know, over a period of a few years, I would say. So so the first sort of wave of inspiration came when I was traveling through Western Australia with my twin sister. And we ended up in Fremantle near Perth at um, the Maritime Museum in Fremantle. And sort of tucked away among the old ships and anchors and things like that was a little exhibition about a family of British settlers who had sailed across to Western Australia to set up in the pearl shell industry. Um, And the matriarch of this family was, we would describe her now as as an early feminist, um, although they didn't use that word those days, obviously, but she she subscribed to feminist pamphlets, she survived shipwrecks and storms, she established a school in the outback, she was quite a sort of incredible woman. But I didn't do anything, you know, I found that fascinating. I found the idea of of British settlers to Australia, this interesting industry that I didn't know very much about, and this idea of a very strong woman at its heart. This woman was also called Eliza. Um, And it was only actually when I ended up in Broome, which is in the northwest Kimberley region, which is a stunningly beautiful but very rugged place with sort of bright red pinden soil and turquoise seas and these huge you know full moons that cast laddered sort of silhouettes across the mudflats. and this is where in the 19th century people from all over the world descended on this tiny little sort of red dust town like you would have with a gold rush town to search for pearl shell and I became fascinated with this place and those two things came together. Uh, An early pearling town that would have had this very sort of swaggering, almost wild west feel to it and a very strong woman at the center of this British settler family coming across and those two things met. And so that is how the initial idea came together. And then obviously it was a process of going back out to Australia as much as I could and doing research on the ground and things like that, trawling through archives, meeting, people doing interviews speaking to naturalists crocodile experts you know all sorts of people so it was it was a really long process but yeah it all
0: started with that one trip with my sister the harsh realities of the pearling industry is something I knew very little of also I imagine you did quite a bit of research on this subject how did you go about researching it
1: well I found that I found the pearling industry and particularly the dangers that came with the pearling industry fascinating because I think if you see a pearl or a string of pearls or perhaps you see a picture of a pearling lugger so the sailing boats they used to go out onto the water to search for these pearls it can seem like quite a romantic thing. Um, it was not a romantic thing it was an incredibly incredibly dangerous thing. Hard hat diving was and still is considered to be one of the most dangerous occupations in the world so these men went down to the seabed and they came up against sharks crocodiles sea snakes or decompression sickness which we now know of as the bends which would have been caused by rising too quickly from the seabed and even being out on the luggers it was very hard to get the nutrition they needed so lots of them suffered from malnutrition or a disease called beriberi disease Um, having an you know, an infection, some, you, know, you could die from an infection because you simply wouldn't be able to get, you know, to medical attention because you were so remote and so far in the middle of nowhere. But in order to do my research on it, I spent a lot of time in the UK in places like the British Library researching as much as I like could sort of firsthand accounts from the Perlers about what it was like to be on these ships or um, things like that. Out in Australia, I went to visit sort of old luggers so I could see that's the ships to see what they actually looked like. Tried on hard hat diving helmets, um, Mm -hmm. just really did as much research as I could on the ground, people who knew that history as well. I spoke to lots of people whose ancestors were involved in the pearling industry as well, whether that was the white Europeans who were the master pearlers or the indigenous population who were exploited at the time and used by many of the pearls to staff their ships. So I wanted to speak to people you know, with those two separate experiences too just sort of getting hold of everything that I could about this this industry this place and um, particularly first-hand accounts of what it was like to be out on those boats which I found really captivating.
0: Locales in this novel become almost like characters of their own. What was your inspiration for Bannon Bay and why choose a fictional locale? Good question.
1: Um, (laughs) So Broom was my general my main inspiration for Bannon Bay. But there are people far better placed to write a history of Broome than me. <laughs> I didn't feel that I wanted to take it upon myself to, to write a history of a town that actually existed. But there were other pearling hubs too, places like Cossack, places like Shark Bay, which were a bit further down the coast. So I, I used those, them all as sort of my inspiration for this, this one place, which I called Bannon Bay. And Bannon is actually a term for a seabed that has lots of shell on it. Um, and so, yes, I, I I wanted the setting to be very vibrant, very immersive, very gritty. Um, and, yeah, it was, it was interesting to learn more about, about those places and what they would have been like at that time. You know, these places were so remote that laws that were enacted in Perth, for example, just didn't travel that far because they were so cut off and so remote. So it really was quite a lawless... You know, these early Perlinghams really were quite lawless places and they would have been very uncomfortable places to live in purely by virtue of the environment. You know, they were yeah. really hot and sweltering and humid and mosquitoes and sandflies and cockroaches when they were on the <laughs> ships. You know, it re- I, I, when I as, the more I read about these places, the more sort of visceral they became and the more I wanted to um, put that into my own novel as well.
0: And what was it about this particular era that interested you in the late 1800s in Western Australia?
1: I think um, the fact that it was a was a time where, you know, laws weren't, you know, being perhaps put into practice as they, they might be these days. Perling in its early stages was totally unregulated. People could sort of pretty much do what they wanted um, and whether that was exploiting uh indigenous populations, women, children. Um, I also thought the idea of being a woman at that time would have been really interesting as well, because this, you know, would have been an incredibly macho, you know, incredibly masculine place to be. Um, I think, you know, accounts of Broome at that time say that there were perhaps a thousand men and maybe 30 women. Um, so you know, and I I found that interesting, and I, I wanted to explore what it would have been like to be a woman at that time. And also, when I was when I was researching, I was reading a lot of adventure fiction that was sort of set at this time, and it was all about men. You know, it was all about men having adventures. Um, which is fine, but I wanted to explore what it would be like to be a woman having an adventure yeah. at, this, at this time. And there's just something about the 19th century which just personally captivates me. It's a part of, you know, it's an era that just has always interested me wherever you are in the world. I think it's interesting because you're starting to get progress and change. And, you know, at this time you have so many interesting explorers, interesting naturalists uncovering new and different things. So it's just something that really, you know grabs my attention
0: there are many vivid and at times even gruesome descriptions of the many creatures, insects and other inhabitants uh, of the various isles featured in your novel. How did you go about researching these particulars in order to get the details right? (laughs) So
1: again I was really lucky in that there were some first-hand accounts of what it was like to be on the ships or be in these sort of uh, pearling hubs and it was a case of truth being stranger than fiction often when it was researching these when i was researching these stories i just couldn't believe what i was reading you know for example when when the luggers had finished for their season they would be so infested with cockroaches and rats that they would they would drown them in the shallows of the mangroves they would drown their ships those they would flood their ship turn them on their side flood them and that would send the cockroaches and the rats and things out into the water and the fish would come and and eat these cockroaches and so the men on shore would throw in explosives dynamite which would then stun the fish and they could just scoop them up and eat them for their dinner you know and there were so many stories like that about this place you know it really was a a sort of stifling place to be um and yeah I was just so lucky in that there were so many different nuggets of information in these in these things that I was reading that I was able to just use them to spark my creativity and um lots of the lots of the things particularly in Charles's diaries in the book so Eliza's father um is not actually often present physically present in the book however his presence is still there through his diaries and lots of the uh, details in his diaries are actually from real life accounts of what it would
0: like to be on those pearling boats I've heard the mischie- uh, mischievous uh, cockatoo in your novel is based on another talking bird. Uh, this made me think of the, a foul-mouthed bird in Jane Johnson's novel, The Seagate. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about this story?
1: <laughs> yeah, so again, it was, I, it was so interesting to read about the real people who lived in Broome um, and these purling hubs around the sort of turn of the century. And one of them was a, a ship's bosun from the Caribbean called Conrad Gill. And he had a talking parrot and he would walk around Broome, and he had this <laughs> talking parrot on his shoulder. And this parrot caused all sorts of mischief. It would steal money, it would steal pearls, the men would feed it rum, and it would sort of sing rude sea shanties and things like that. Um, The police arrested the bird once because it it stole someone's someone's money from one of the hotels and they couldn't get it back. Um, And I thought, I can't not use that. You know, that's so that's so great. And so that became the inspiration for my bird character, Confucius. And I also wanted Confucius um, to act as a sort of silent narrator in the book as well. So when Confucius appears in the story, he very often leads the reader's eye, if you can say that, to a particular clue or to a particular detail. Um, and so I love the idea of using a bird to do that. And um, yeah, reading that story of, of Conrad Gill and his bird, t- it was just irresistible.
0: <laughs> I'm glad you included the bird in the script. <laughs> Another fascinating aspect of your novel are Eliza's father's journal entries. Um, and then I was about to ask you, but you just revealed that yes, they were indeed based on real life characters, actual journey uh, journal entries. Did you uh, come across them in a museum or in some kind of historical society? <laughs> Various things, so I did, I spent time at the Broome Historical Society,
1: um, which is a a little museum in Broome and they have um, archives there that you can just sit and sort of trawl through. And so I did that uh, one very hot day when I was in Australia and just went through these archives of newspaper, um, clippings, diary entries, letters, things like that. So lots of them were from there. And then um, non-fiction books at the time, there were two books that I found really useful, um, Beyond the Lattice by Susan Sickert, and Port of Pearls by Hugh Edwards that just had these gems of stories in them about what it was like to be on these boats. And uh, one of the ones that particularly I just, I couldn't believe, and which made it into Charles's diaries was um, the fact that uh, sometimes when the divers were in the water, whales would uh, turn up, humpback whales would turn up. And um, you might think, oh, they're so lovely and gentle. And they are. Um, But they're also clumsy and inquisitive. So they would often come over to the boats and occasionally in terrible circumstances, the divers air pipes would become entangled in the flukes of the whales and the whales would sort of bolt and the men who were in the water would would ultimately be drowned by that. And I just found, you know, that was terrifying and fascinating as well. And so that was something that I recounted in the diaries. But there were so many stories like that, that I just I just thought, that, you know, it's such a fascinating and brutal industry and just a mark of how far um, some people are willing to go to sort of get these treasures from the earth or the sea, as it were. <laughs>
0: Eliza is definitely not a typical female character one would expect to encounter in this type of setting and time period. Where did your inspiration come from when writing Eliza's character? So uh,
1: as I said, I had I had this idea of the other Eliza, um, yes. Eliza Broadhurst. Her name was, and but that was more a sort of sentiment. I love the idea of this very strong-willed woman in this environment that. Um, would have been very unforgiving and very unforgiving to her as a woman as well. And so she was a big inspiration. And also the adventure stories that, I'm, that I mentioned to you, you know, reading so many great books where people have amazing adventures and thinking, hang on, but all these women are barmaids or wives or, you know, things like that. And I really wanted a central, a central character in a book like that to be a woman um, and yeah I, I, I don't think that I initially set out to write a book that was a feminist in quotation marks but I think it ultimately did end up like that um, but yeah it just it's just evolved into a very strong-willed a strong-willed uh, woman and, and also an example of I think anyone when pushed to the limits and when put into a situation where they are say you know where they've got nothing to lose basically. And they, they're, they're saving their family. Um, I, I do think that, you know, we can achieve incredible things when we're pushed to our limits like that.
0: Can you tell us a bit about Min in your novel and what inspired you to include her story in this novel?
1: I, I wanted, obviously I have, you have Eliza in this book who is, um, very strong-willed, very um, mobile and active but she is able to be active like that because she is a white woman and I wanted to truthfully represent the fact that not every woman in that sort of landscape would have the liberty that a white woman would have had to go to certain places and do certain things. So Min is of mixed heritage, she's she's Chinese and white. Um, and there were lots of, uh, you know, there was an influx of people from, from Asia to, you know, Broome in particular was a very, very multicultural place. But I felt it important to represent the fact that no, not all women would have been granted um, the freedom that Eliza perhaps had to, to roam that particular place. Also, Min is very smart. She's very questioning. She's very probing. Um, and I wanted a character there who would question most things that Eliza did because, you know, I think you need that in a story and you need um, somebody who's sort of saying, you do realise these things you're doing are quite, are quite outlandish. Have you thought this? So, so I also wanted her to be a sort of... Um, rational character to represent logic to represent um you know um not not being sensible but I felt I needed something to offset Eliza and actually she was a much smaller character when I when I started writing the book Min and then it was like she kept knocking on my door and saying hello hello you know I deserve more in this story um and ultimately not to give anything away Min does get a happy well yeah I don't want to give anything away but but she gets the good things that she deserves ultimately. Um,
0: And so I felt that was important to show too. And Eliza develops a bit of a soft spot, if you will, for Axel. Can you tell us how this character came to mind and share a bit of his story with the audience? So
1: Axel is a, um, another outsider, you could say. So he's, he's come across to Bannon Bay from Germany because men, came, men and women came from all over the world, different parts of Europe, um, lots of people from America and lots of people from Germany and other parts of Europe. Um, and with Axel, I really wanted to have a leading oh. male character who had none of the characteristics <laughs> of what a sort of desirable leading male character is. You know, he's not brave, he's not strong he's you know not not dashing necessarily um but i wanted people to still root for him so that's what i i wanted to explore with axel whether we could because obviously with books like this in these sorts of settings you do very often get male characters who save the women um you know in from their various sort of terrible situations and actually most of the times throughout the novel it's eliza saving axel um, and that was quite an intentional thing as well. And I had scenes that I sort of subconsciously wrote in a way that the man was saving the woman without even thinking about it. And then ultimately, in redrafting and redrafting, I thought, no, these, these scenes have to switch. Yes. And the woman has to be saving the man just to be a bit fresher. And so Axel was. At, uh, it was actually probably my favorite character to write. Uh, you know, have such a soft spot for him because, you know, he's a bit pathetic, but he's he's. <laughs> And also I wanted a um, male character in there who was good, you know, who, yes. who, who was not necessarily exploitative or, you know, whatever, like lots of the other people in the book were. So he was, he was a vehicle to be able to do that as well. Yeah.
0: The, the, the very deep emotional connection between Lizzie and her dad is probably one of my favorite aspects of your novel. Uh, can you tell the audience a bit more about how Lizzie's dad encouraged her encourages her to learn about her family's new surroundings in bannon bay when they first arrive and leaves clues for her here and there as a sort of a game (laughs) yeah so
1: the central relationship in the book is a father-daughter relationship between eliza and charles her her father um and i i wanted uh him to be a central character, but as I said, not necessarily always be there in the action of the book. So we see Charles a lot through Eliza's memories of him opening her eyes to this sort of natural beauty of the natural world. And she there's another male character who does that as well, which is Balari, who also helps open Eliza's eyes to, you know, the landscapes and the insects and the animals and things like that. Um, and I felt that I hadn't really, really read that many books where it was a father-daughter relationship and so I really really wanted to explore that I had my father passed away when I was 19 I had a really close relationship with him he was a lover of the natural world and I I think I always knew that if I did write a book it would it would focus on a, a sort of you know, a love story between a father and a daughter, you know, like that that, that very special relationship. Um, but also Charles is not perfect. And no. throughout the novel, you, you, you see Eliza's, slow, gradual realisation that her father is not untouchable, and her father is not perfect. And I think that's something that we all go through, you know, as we reach early adulthood, we're like, well, hang on, you know, my parents aren't right about everything. What do you mean? And, and so I wanted to explore that in the book as well. And so it it felt, I felt compelled to write a story about a father and a daughter. Um, And, yeah.
0: Lizzie and her brother have a bit of a volatile relationship. Can you tell us why you chose this angle for him?
1: Um, I wanted, so I agree. Thomas, Eliza's brother, is probably one of the most complicated characters in the book. Um, And interestingly, I've had very different reader reactions to him as well. I've had people saying, oh, you know, this this layabout brother, this no good brother, or um, some people saying oh this fragile brother and things like that and what I actually wanted to explore was the different ways in which we deal with grief and so Eliza and Thomas have both had loss in their life before this book even starts with Eliza it has um acted as a rocket fuel you know it grief I think for some people can be a driving force you know you feel you know I've I've lost this what have I got to lose and it can spur you on to achieve things that you never would have thought you could achieve with people like Thomas it's not it's a fracturing thing um and Thomas represents for me the struggle um with coming to terms with grief and I wanted him to be a realistic character in that sense and also I wanted him to represent the fact that sometimes you know you you still can't give up on people Eliza doesn't give up on Thomas um but it's a difficult relationship and so it was it was a thorny thing to explore but I, I felt it was important to do so
0: I read you went through several drafts before getting to your final story. Uh, could you fill us in on your writing process and how you adapted or evolved each of the previous versions?
1: Oh gosh, I must, you know <laughs> it was probably about 15 drafts before I even sent it off to an agent, but that's the luxury of a first novel. You know, nobody's waiting for it. Nobody's expecting it. You've got all this time to sort of tinker with it. Um, so yeah, my process is, and this has happened because I'm writing a second book currently, Um, is that I write a first draft and it is terrible. You know, it is a terrible, messy first draft full of plot holes and Xs and things like uh, make this sound good or, you know, somebody does something boaty to something boaty because, uh, you know, with the first first draft stage, you're just getting the words down and trying to get to the end of the story. You're telling yourself the story, basically, with the first draft. Um, And then I went through the slow process of, Drafts that focused on the structure of the novel and plot, and were things happening in the right order, and things like that. Then I did drafts that focused on, you know, I did a draft that focused on insects and flies um, because I wanted to make sure I had, you know, that bright, sort of immersive sense of uh, insects throughout the book. I did a draft that focused on weather because, again, the weather is so important in this book you've got this slow build-up of this sort of humidity and this heat leading to a sort of crescendo at the end Um, and so as I'm finding with the second book too it's really just a process of reworking and reworking and just you know time taken to go over the work oh it's 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 a long long process Mm -hmm. um but yeah I wanted it to be right before it went out to my agent and then ultimately went on to publish it and things like that
0: the descriptions of how terribly the aboriginals were treated in this time and place in history is described in a number of passages in your novel, which some readers may find difficult to digest. How did you go about researching this aspect of the novel?
1: Yeah, um, I, I felt it was so important to include these this this history in the novel because to write about Australia, to write about white settlement in Australia and to not include the fact that, you know, white settlement was at the detriment of Indigenous people in Australia who, is de- who were depossessed, displaced, um, exploited. Uh, so the first, the first part of that sort of research was text-based and book-based and things like that. But then I wanted to speak to people who had that lived experience of being Indigenous in Australia and indeed people whose um, family members were involved in in this industry and so I was really lucky in that um, someone called Bart Pigram who is a um, curator for the Western Australian Museum and he's an Indigenous guy down in Australia and his uh, great 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 grandfather was a white pearler who took an indigenous woman as a wife and she bore him children and they were in the the pearling industry. And he um, came on board as a cultural consultant on the novel. And so he he read those particular passages and advised on what was accurate, what was um, sensitive and respectful. And then also the Kimberley Aboriginal Law and Cultural Centre did a similar consultation on the novel and, I just felt that was so important and also such a privilege to have people um, reading the novel and ensuring it was as accurate and respectful as possible. But I, I just felt there was no way I could write this story and not tell that truth as well. Um, so yeah, so, so so I wanted to include, yeah, everything about this industry, the, the, the bad parts and all. A
0: poignant monument now overlooks the water near Broom a statue of a pregnant aboriginal pearl diver bursting from the sea with a shell in her ponds. Can you tell us a bit uh, about the backstory here and why pregnant women were used in such a dangerous practice as pearl diving?
1: Yeah so this is one of the most shocking things I um, discovered when I was researching this book. Um, So as I said in its early stages um, of pearling, it was completely unregulated. And in these early stages, they didn't have the hard hat suits, they didn't have anything like that. They were kidnapping um, Aboriginal men, women and children and forcing them to dive, um, free dive, naked, off their ships for for pearl shell. And the pearlers believed that um, pregnant women had an increased lung capacity and therefore could dive deeper and for longer for shell. And so they either recruited, recruited in inverted commas, kidnapped, um, uh, pregnant Aboriginal women, or they forcibly impregnated them and forced them to dive. Um, And so my my story takes place later than that, um, when the the makeup of the boats was very different. Um, Most of the divers came at that point um, from Japan And they were very skilled divers in hard hat suits and things like that. But I did feel it was important to touch on that history that actually this is how it started. And this is just how exploitative it was at the start. Um, And so, yes, there's a monument in Broome, which is of a pregnant woman holding a pearl shell, which is um, to honor the fact that this is how it how it all started, really.
0: I read that you visited remote pearl farms when researching this novel can you please share this this experience with our audience
1: yeah so out on the place called the dampier peninsula which is um, a bit of land that sort of juts into the indian ocean above Broome, which is incredibly beautiful again with this bright red soil and it's just stunning and mangrove swamps and things like that there are still pearl farms that operate they they culture pearls, they farm pearls now. They don't dive for them yes. like you they did um, you know, back in the in the nineteenth century. They grow them and they cultivate them. And you can go and visit them. And this is this is where they would have done the other sorts of of pearling as well, going out on their luggers. And it's really, really fascinating place to go and visit and you can go out on little boats and see their little stacks of the um, pearl shell in the water and then they take the pearls out and you can see how they harv- harvest harvest no, take the pearl shell out and you can see how they harvest the pearl from the shell it's just a really fascinating uh place you know to to go and visit and they have a few around Broome Signet Bay Pearl Farm and Willie Creek Pearls and um past Paley which is the big pearl brand in in Australia but such an interesting place and they do they do do justice to Um, the sort of dark history of pearling as well they do give sort of informative tours and stuff like that but but nowadays it's completely different very clinical very scientific (laughs) process and they produce these you know huge pearls the size of your eyeballs and sell them for lots and lots of money
0: (laughs) (laughs) and do you look at pearls differently now after
1: writing this novel yes I definitely especially old pearls I mean now you can you can get a pearl and you know that it's you know it's been farmed and it's been it's been cultured but i definitely do and i had no uh, genuinely before i started writing this book and having this idea for this book i had no idea that you know pearls had this bloody history <laughs> um and so yes but and i've had lots of people say oh my god i'll never look at i'll never look at a string of pearls in the same way again and it's like oh you're okay now you know it doesn't happen these days but <laughs> it's, it's uh, you know but i guess it's like lots of things lots of natural treasures you know, the mining for diamonds has always been exploitative and gold and things like that. It's it's, these these gems and these
0: beautiful things often have a very dark history. I see we had something come into the um, Q&A a a little bit earlier. Um, It's from Rosie Hancock and she says, hello, I would like to know if the character Axel is based on anyone in particular, what (laughs) or who was the inspiration for him?
1: That's so interesting. And actually I would say, the inspiration for him was somebody who was the complete opposite to him. So um, there was a very dashing master pearler called Ansel Gregory, who um, lived and worked on the purling boats around Broome. And, you know, he was the trademark dashing hero. You know, he was handsome. Um, His crews loved him. And he he was just, you know, one of those that you would get in one of those Victorian adventure stories. And I thought, okay, I'm taking this person and I'm doing the exact opposite of him for my main character. So it wasn't that Axel was um, based on a real person. It's that he was based on the sort of alter, you know, complete opposite um, of, of somebody who did
0: exist. So uh, d- thank you so much, uh, Lizzie, for sharing your time with us and for speaking about your wonderful new novel. And it's out today. So please put your name down for it if you haven't already, Moonlight and the Perler's Daughter. Uh, if anyone has a question, you can type it into the Q&A or use the chat. In the meantime, I will ask you, what advice would you give to prospective writers listening in tonight?
1: What I think I would probably say is I think... I think sometimes there's this myth that good writing or successful writing comes easily. And if you're finding it really hard, that means you're not cut out for it or you're doing it wrong. Uh, That's not true. (laughs) You know, writing is such a slog. It's, it's such, it's like training for a marathon. It's genuinely a case of sitting in the seat and doing it every day. Um, And I look back on my, on Moonlight and the Pearl's Daughter. And I remember certain scenes that were really hard to write. And I remember when I was writing them, this is no good because I'm finding it hard and it's like pulling teeth, getting the words out. But actually now I think they're some of the best scenes. (laughs) So my advice would be, you're not doing it wrong if you're finding it hard. You're not doing it wrong if it's taking you a long time. You're not doing it wrong if you're having to stop and learn things along the way. Um, It's just
0: a case of keeping going. So Rebecca says, so interesting. Uh, I love hearing the backstory and I can't wait to read it. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so we have another question uh, coming in from the chat. What is your next project? Can you give us a sneak peek?
1: (laughs) So the next project is currently in that terrible draft stage, but it is (laughs) another um, female-driven historical adventure story set partly in Victorian London and partly in the Canadian Arctic. And it deals with similarly sort of dark themes, but also has a sort of heartfelt hopeful edge to it as well. That's all I'm probably allowed to say, but um, yeah, that's what I'm (laughs) working on at the moment.
0: (laughs) Sounds good. And uh, with all the traveling you've done uh, before the pandemic, Can you tell us where you would love to travel to next?
1: Oh, still so many places that I'd love to go to. Um, I would love to go to Patagonia um, and travel around there. My, the places that I want to go are always about what the wildlife that I want to see. (laughs) It's like a checklist of things that I'm desperate to sort of search for. So um, Pumas would be, you know, mountain lions would be on my list there. Um, But then also I'd love to go to the Pantanal wetlands in Brazil where they have huge jaguars and anacondas and giant anteaters. And it just seems like the most fantastical place in the world. So I'd say those two.
0: (laughs) Very nice. Thank you so much again, Lizzie, uh, for sharing your time with us. It was a pleasure speaking to you and uh, I hope everyone tuning in enjoys your latest, your new novel as much as I did. Thank Thank you so much. Have a nice evening. Thank you. Bye-bye.